Uh, first, I want to tell you maybe kind of a little fun fact about me is I was classically trained on the piano. That's right. For 11 years, I kind of played my way through Chopin and Beethoven and Debussy and a few others, and I was like okay at it. And I did kind of the you know the recital circuit and stuff and. Um, it, it was like high stakes and fancy, and just to be honest, I, I just didn't really connect so much with that crowd. But I remember the day I found my kind of people, uh, and it was the day I joined a band called Nico and the Fat Pants. I've got a picture of it right here. So the reason we're called the Fat Pants is because we made these ginormous, like, uh, silver-colored pants out of mylar bags that we found at a bindery. And we played um, a form of music that we called Nash Vegas music. And it was like funk and pop and just kind of really random stuff. And the pinnacle of my high school career with Nico and the Fat Pants was when we opened up for the Newsboys, um, which if you're not familiar with 90s uh, like Christian subculture, uh, they're like the Christian equivalent to like maybe Nickelback. And uh, it was at a Christian music festival called Soul Fest in the summer of 2000. And to be honest, it's been all downhill since then for me. <laughs> um, so have you ever had that moment, you know, where you've discovered your people? Like for me, like being in the band and being on that stage, I just felt myself coming alive. Like I was meant to be with, with Nico and the rest of the Fat Pants crew. Have you ever had that moment? Maybe like a sports team or a, a drama club or um, you know, maybe even a, a work team or maybe even your family. Have you had that moment where you're looking around and you're going, wow, it almost feels like these people were handpicked to be together for such a time as this. Do you think God has his kind of people? Do you think God has his kind of people? If so, what are they like? Where does he go to find them? Are they, you know, white uh, middle-class Republicans? Are they black, uh, you know, liberal Democrats? Are they rich? Are they poor? Uh, what, what are they like? And this is a really, really important question for us right now in this moment in our history because we have all sorts of tribes of people, all different kinds of people who are laying their claims on God and saying we're God's kind of people. And we have to go, who is God's kind of people? Who's right? So here is what we're claiming today, and here's what we think John chapter four is teaching, is that God's kind of people are worshipers who are transformed into partners. Worshippers in that they're centered on Christ more than any political or religious tradition, and partners in that there are people who participate in God's global renewal mission for all people. So when seeking worshipers to transform into partners, the first thing we learn is that it's not who you expect. It's not who you expect. So we're going to look at uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now get this in verse four, this is very important. 
Now, he had to go through Samaria. So I'm going to show you uh, a map. This is, a, this is critical that we understand this. So uh, what we just read is telling us uh, that, okay, here's Jerusalem. This is where the Pharisees camp out. That's like the epicenter of their power. And they're scrutinizing this rising messianic movement that people are flocking to. It's Jesus and his disciples, and they're hanging out right in the wilderness uh, there outside of Jerusalem, baptizing people. And it's like they can't baptize people fast enough. It's just crazy. Now, all of the scrutiny that the Pharisees have is just zeroed in on on Jesus and the tensions are high. Why? Well, if you have been with us in the last few weeks or if you've read the first few chapters of John, you see that Jesus has kicked the beehive. Uh, he went right into the heart of Jerusalem, the temple, and he cleared out the temple and he called all those religious leaders out on their hypocrisy. So they are watching him. So Jesus says, ah, it's time to go. We're going to go through Samaria. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to go through to Galilee, which is way up here. That's where he was from, and we're going to go through Samaria. Now, if you are a good Jew, which his disciples were, they're going, what? Samaria. Because good Jews would go to Jericho and take the road around Samaria. But Jesus says, no, no, we're going to go straight through. Why is this a big deal? Wow, my hand was not bleeding. That was weird. For those of you listening on the podcast, never mind. Something weird just happened. Why, why would they go through Samaria? See, Samaritans were, were about as different as good Jewish people as you could possibly be. They were political rebels, so they were the cause hundreds of years before of the uh, Israeli civil war that split the country in two. They were ethical misfits. They just trashed the covenant they filled their mountaintops with shrines to all sorts of idols. Uh, and the Assyrians at one point came and wiped Samaria out as a part of like uh, uh, Assyria's just kind of taking over the world. Uh, and it, that was a, a, an act of judgment by God on, the, on the, the people, the rulers of Samaria. And then what they did is they sprinkled in people from all over the Assyrian Empire in order to create a kind of cultural genocide, watering the, the, the blood and the ethnicity of true Israelites down in that area. And so the Jews looked at Samaritans as kind of an eth, like a, a, a racial half-breed, right? So they were political rebels, ethical misfits, racial half-breeds, and worst of all, they're theological heretics. They had uh, basically torn out most of the Hebrew Bible, uh, and they even established their own temple at Mount Gerizim, the place we're going to see that Jesus actually goes, as a rival temple to the, the temple in Jerusalem. This, they, they were as far away uh, ideologically from good Jewish people as you could possibly get. And there are even rabbis recorded saying the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. But Jesus said, we, had, we have to go through Samaria. See, when you're following Jesus, he often makes us encounter people that we would normally avoid. Why? Because he transcends our boundaries. See, there are certain kinds of people that you and I like, right? 
There are people then we don't really like, but we just kind of learn to get along with. And then there are those that we don't really have to get along with them, but we can tolerate them as long as they stay over there. But there are some people that have so deeply violated something sacred to us that the only approach is avoidance. We don't go to where those people are. But Jesus transcends our boundaries. He doesn't erase them. He doesn't say they don't matter. But if you are a follower of Jesus, it means you will encounter people you normally try to avoid. Should we see how this plays out? Look in verse 5. It says, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Tuck that away for later. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John gives us this very important little parenthetical statement. He says, for Jews, do not associate with Samaritans, which is a way of saying they hold nothing in common with Samaritans. See, for a religious Jew uh, to even touch the water vessel of a Samaritan woman, he, like that would make him unclean. Verse 16 He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, and Jesus is speaking uh, prophetically, it's a word of knowledge by the Holy Spirit in him. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So divorce was not as common as it is today. And when it happened, it was usually because the man initiated it. Now, we don't know why her family life is such a train wreck. I mean, there are lots of guesses. I mean, she could be widowed that many times. She could have been uh, you know, rejected and divorced that many times. Think about what that would do to a person. Maybe she was a serial adulterer. Scholars argue about this stuff endlessly. But what we can know is that she saw herself as damaged goods. And her life was a mess. See, a well wasn't just a place where it was primarily women uh, would just go get water. It was also a place where they would connect with one another and socialize. It was part of their social fabric. They would go in the morning or in the evening when the weather was cooler. But when was she there? Do you remember? She was there at noon. She's there in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, when no one in the right mind would want to carry a, a stone water jug full of water. I mean, can you imagine that? But here she is. In other words, she doesn't think she belongs. She doesn't think she belongs. For some reason, she's learned to be the kind of person who, you know the type, maybe you've been the type, who sneaks in back doors, uh, keeps a low profile, comes in late, leaves early. 
maybe tired of all the fake sympathy and the passive aggressive looks. And you feel that. But Jesus' response is so beautiful. It's so beautiful how he interacts with this woman. He doesn't come at her as a prophet, pointing out how different she is, although he could have done that, but he came to her as a weary traveler asking for help. You know, I think Christians have a hard time with this sometimes. It's hard for us to put human dignity in front of human differences. See, when we encounter people who maybe are politically, ethically, racially, socially, theologically other than us, different than us, often all we can see is the difference. When the first thing that we should see for following the pattern of Jesus is her dignity. You know, one of the most dignifying, honoring things you can do to someone is ask them for help. Why is that? The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's just something about admitting, you know, you have something that I don't, and I need you. He gives her dignity before pointing out the differences. So Jesus is seeking for worshipers among people you would never expect, but he also seeks for worshipers where you would never expect. So John points out the place where he meets this woman. Did you catch it? It's this well called Jacob's Well. I've got a picture of what it looks like today. So this is, um, uh, archaeologists believe, the actual well. It's, it's, uh, right now, there's been a, a Greek Orthodox kind of shrine that's been built around it, but this is the well. They believe Jacob himself actually dug this thousands of years ago. It's been running ever since. And this particular well, I mean, there are lots of wells, but this particular one is pregnant with spiritual meaning. It's a sacred space for a lot of reasons. For the Samaritans, it was near Mount Gerizim, which uh, Moses, if you read in the book of Exodus, stood and gave blessing on that mountain. It was, uh, that's where they ended up building their temple. It was only a couple hundred yards away from the burial site of Joseph. Remember that guy? His bones are just a few hundred yards away from this well. And uh, it, of course, it was you know, dug by Jacob. So Jesus, in verse 10, answers this woman. He says, if you knew the gift of God, I mean, they're in this sacred space, right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is saying, look, you don't know who I am yet, but if you did, you'd be asking me for a gift, living water. There's a play on words that's kind of hidden by our English translation, but in Greek, living water uh, is this, it's the same words used for stream or river. It's like any kind of water that moves and bubbles and Jacob's well uh, was, was dug about 100 feet down and is connected to an underground river. So you, and they knew that. So you can see uh, the kind of the confusion in her response in verse 11. Check this out. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you, you get this living water, this moving water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? In other words, she's asking, do you know of any other rivers around here? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus answered, look, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Are you getting the sense that this woman and Jesus are not talking about the same thing? Right? See, Jesus knows what this woman is really after. Sure, she was there to get water, you know, for herself and maybe for uh, the man she was with and maybe for the family. But she was also coming to this sacred space to get water for her soul. See, this was the kind of place that was supposed to meet her social needs and her spiritual needs. Let me ask you, what kind of place do you go to to meet your social and your spiritual needs? Anybody? Church. You go to church, right? See, Jesus transcends our traditions. He transcends our traditions. See, we dig wells for every sort of thirst, every sort of longing. We have religious traditions. We have church to satisfy our longing for truth and meaning and forgiveness and belonging. We have political traditions to satisfy our longing for justice. We have family traditions to satisfy our longing for love. We have sexual traditions to satisfy intimacy and we have work. I mean, the the list goes on and on. And what Jesus is saying here is my water is gonna satisfy you in a way that none of your traditions ever could. He's transcending our traditions. But there's more for us to unpack. Look in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet, you think. (laughs) Oh, you're you're like a Bible nerd, aren't you? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You see what she's doing? She's like, oh, I have a Jewish expert here. And, and what do you do when you have an expert on a, on a subject? You have that burning question inside and you want to finally get an honest answer straight from the horse's mouth from the guy or the girl who's supposed to know what they're talking about. She says, Here is the debate. This is the theological fulcrum point uh, about the place of worship. And this this is at the heart of the Jewish and Samaritan conflict. And the, the question is simple. Which temple is the real temple? Is it the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim? Which, by the way, Jewish reformers had destroyed 200 years earlier. That's how important it was. Or is it the Jewish temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem? Look at his response. It's incredible. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And it's important to pay attention to what he doesn't say. He's not saying, look, real worship can only happen in Jerusalem. It's in the Bible. Look it up. 
You know, and if it's, it's God's way or the highway. That's what you'd expect a good conservative Jewish rabbi to say. But he also doesn't say, and this is very important, look, you know what? Real worship can, only, can happen wherever your heart leads, you know? You know, so just choose your own path. Choose your own, you know, all roads lead to the same God. As long as you're authentic and you're nice to people and don't judge anyone, you know, then, then you're, you'll be good. He doesn't say that either. And that's what a, a progressive might say. What he says is something new is happening. Woman, you are standing on the precipice of a new era. The location of true worship is going to change. Look, um, in verse 23 with me right here. Here's how he describes this, and David quoted this earlier. He said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Spirit in the Greek, uh, pneuma, which literally means breath or wind, and that's talking about the, the animating life force of God that animates all of life. Truth, aletheia in the Greek, is talking about reality, and that's about conforming to the world, uh, the universe, the reality, the way it actually is. And Jesus is saying, true worship happens when you are animated by the power of God, connected to the reality of who God actually is. In other words, real worship can only happen when people are in Jesus, when they're in Jesus. Uh, Look with me at um, verse, uh, let's see, 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is one of the clearest, most unambiguous self-declarations that we have in all the Bible. Jesus is saying, I am the power and the presence and the reality of God. The Messiah is here with you right now. And what this means is that true worship happens not when we go to holy places, not when we practice holy traditions, but when we cling to a holy person, Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus is the place for true worshipers to worship. And just like the woman We get caught up in all sorts of theological debates, thinking that if we're just right on those things, then that's what defines us. We have the Lutheran-Catholic debate. We've got conservative-liberal. What do we do with uh, divorce and remarriage? Should, Should women preach in church? Should I go to my brother's gay wedding? Should I take communion at an Episcopalian church? Want to hear all the time, it's should I baptize my baby? Is it pro-life or is it care for the vulnerable? Is it black lives matter, blue lives matter, or all lives matter? The kind of worship God is looking for isn't based on the correctness of our beliefs. It's based on the place of our trust. 
the worshipers that God is seeking are not people who are found in this denomination or that one, or this political party or that one. True worshipers are found in Christ. They're submitted to Christ. They're shaped by Christ's teaching. They're obedient to Christ. Oh, there are right answers to all of that stuff. You know, and the world wants to give us chainsaws and jackhammers to try to sort all that stuff out, and Jesus wants to give us a surgeon's scalpel. We, we can't even begin to get to the right answers if we're not founded on Christ. He's the place of our worship. And he's seeking worshipers where we would never expect because he transcends our traditions. But he doesn't stop there. See, he's not just looking for worshipers to worship him. He's looking for partners in his mission of global renewal. See, what, what he does is he transforms our mission, but his partners are not found in the way you would expect. So, back to our story. Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, and meanwhile, where are the disciples? Did, did you catch it in the story? They're shopping for lunch, right? They're out in the marketplace, da-da-da-da-da, doing their thing, and they come back and they have this awkward moment. I love awkward moments. I create as many of them as I can. Sorry, people I work with, slash my family. But, but just, I hope you can enjoy this with me. Okay, verse 27. They, they came back and they were surprised to find him talking with this woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? Don't you love that? They were all thinking it. No one could say it. And they can't even for a moment, possibly imagine what has just happened inside of this woman. The, the revolution that has just taken place in her heart. That her encounter with the real Messiah has caused her to put her trust in him and then reject her sin and the wreckage of her past, transform her identity that's under... It's done all of that, but then look at what happens next in verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, the people she was estranged from, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Slight exaggeration. She was just really excited. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Did you catch that she left her water jar? What does that mean? It means that the purpose that she came to the well for was superseded by a greater mission, a better mission. The Messiah is here. And all of my friends and all of my enemies need to meet this man. See, he transforms our mission. Verse 31, uh, we read, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? Like, did the Samaritan woman have food? Like, what? Again, like, they're talking on two totally different levels. Verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. See, God is looking for worshipers who are transformed into his partners. 
There's, there's something about uh, what he just did that's nourishing his soul. And Jesus is going, you think I need something to strengthen my body? I just had a feast that strengthened my soul. And the disciples, see, they, they did what Christians often do. They got preoccupied with their comfort. Jesus is like, stop being preoccupied with all of this mundane stuff. I mean, do you not see what's happening right now? You're getting sidetracked. We're not here to be comfortable and well-fed. We're here to participate in God's mission of renewal for all people. And when we're preoccupied with our comfort, we lose track of the mission. Guys, there's a soul feast It's waiting for any worshiper of God who is ready to participate in the mission of God to bring the renewing message of Jesus to all people. Don't be preoccupied with comfort. That was part of their problem. The other part of their problem, the disciples' problem, is they just couldn't see the harvest that was right in front of them. Verse 35 Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? This is Jesus talking. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. See, the disciples didn't realize that those people could become God's people. Like They were so focused on just kind of getting through Samaria as quickly as possible that they missed the opportunity right in front of them. And Jesus is saying, stop holding out on serving people because you don't think they're your kind of people. Verse 36, even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. Just a little bit on that in a a minute. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. What Jesus is saying is God's looking for worshipers who become partners because that is a good time. There's nothing better than seeing the harvest come in. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans, this is the result of this conversation. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became Believers, They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the savior of the world. Not just the savior of our people, the savior of the world in the Greek cosmos, which means every people. Every people. So what do we do with this? Two things. First, there's the woman's lesson, and we need to come to the right well. In verse 14, Jesus said, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, what's eternal life? It's not just going to heaven when you die. I mean, that's part of it but he's talking about a quality of life that flows out of a renewed connection with God. It's life as it was meant to be lived. 
a, a life of seeing heaven invade earth, a life of becoming a new type of human, the type that the world longs for. And that's what this woman needed. I mean, her life was a train wreck. And she thought that she could pull it together on her own, coming to this well full of religious meaning and traditions. And Jesus says, I'm the well that you need. So we need to come to the right well. And later in John's gospel, we read what happens at the cross. In John 19, 34, we're going to get to this right around Easter time. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and what? Water. At the cross, Jesus' blood becomes our living water. At the cross, his death becomes our eternal life to come to the right well. The second thing is the disciples' lesson, which is we gotta see the harvest. And this is for you if you've been a Christian, maybe for a long time, See, I love this little detail in verse 40. I don't know if you caught it. It says that Jesus stayed with the Samaritans for two days. Well, guess who was with Jesus? His disciples. <laughs> guess where they stayed? They stayed with the Samaritans, the people they were trying to avoid. And I wonder what happened in those two days. Wish I could see it. Wish I could see the disciples going into the homes of their sworn enemies. Wish I could see them eating at their table, meeting their moms and their grandmas, playing with their kids, getting to know their names, hearing their stories. See, if, if you want to see the harvest, you need to spend time with people you would normally avoid. Get to know them. Open up the closet and pull the skeletons out. Talk about the wounds in your history. Invite Jesus into that place. And maybe, just maybe, we'll realize that our boundary line is maybe important but is not ultimate. And, and maybe that those people can become God's people. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you are the living water. And so, Lord, it's with incredible gratitude that we come to you right now. And I don't know, Lord, who's listening to this. There might be someone who just feels the desert in their spirit, the dryness of their soul, and they're saying, yes, Lord. So, Lord, I, I just pray for those people um, that you would bring them in, give them eternal life, Lord, for those of us who have, we've been at this for a while and we just kind of forget that you love those people. So whoever that is for us, God, I pray that you would challenge us, push us to start having loving conversations, to cross those boundaries that you've crossed already for us and to invite you into those, uh, those spaces of, of wounding and, and pain uh, to bring reconciliation. Lord, we're, we're grateful to be considered yours. We're grateful to be invited um, into what you're doing in the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.